Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, how are you doing? Just checking in. It's been a little bit stressful for Sean and I. I mean, I guess I'll just speak for myself, right? Don't speak for other people. Um, I don't know what it is. I feel like the last couple of weeks I've talked about this on Instagram, just like have flown by and I just feel like I don't have enough time in my day to do the things I need to do. But today I'm working on some video scripts and I, some, sometimes I get super excited to learn about things and I'm doing a video about, uh, your vagus nerve and how it works and why it's important and things that we can do to stimulate it, which if you don't know the polyvagal theory that I've talked about a little bit in regards to our stress response is that like, essentially it's a social connection theory, meaning that it is calming to our nervous system for us to connect with others who truly know us and feel that I don't know, support, I guess is the best way to put it. Anyway, so I'm getting into that and I'm really excited to learn about it as well as talking a little bit about uh, treating borderline personality disorder and how DBT works. So those are the two that I've been working on. And then as well as a video about autism. I know a lot of you've asked me about it because April is Autism Awareness Month, I think is what they're calling it. But I know some of you who are in that community in the ASD community say that they don't like the awareness, they want acceptance. And I understand that. So I'm doing my best to do it justice. Um, okay, enough about me, but I'm going to go to bed early today to take care of myself because I'm just kind of tired today because it's Monday that I'm, I'm recording this on a Monday. Um, but I know for you, it's Thursday. Happy Thursday. But anyway, do something to take care of yourself. If that just means, you know, stop work a little bit earlier, if you can, taking a break, going to bed earlier, drinking more water. Those are all things I try to do when I'm feeling a little tired. Okay, without further ado, let's get into those questions. And like I said, I have 10 and the 10th question is actually a pretty long one because we have essentially two large questions about the same issue. And so anyway, just giving you a heads up. But question number one is, hi, Katie, I was recently diagnosed with depression by my therapist, but I struggle to tell people about it. When I've tried to tell people close to me, they seem to care, but don't really understand what I'm going through. When they ask specific questions about my symptoms and experience, I get so exhausted that I can't even explain what I'm feeling very well. This causes a cycle in which I don't feel understood, want to isolate, and force myself to talk over and over. I'm trying to fight the desire to isolate because I know that that will only make things worse, worse, but it's hard when I feel misunderstood. Totally get it. Do you have any advice or suggestions for how to deal with this? Now, I have a couple of suggestions. First of all, I want you to know that this is very common and something that I've talked with my patients and even some of you out there um, when you've talked to me about this. I've said the same thing where I want you to know that it's not your responsibility 
to to make people understand mental illness. It is our responsibility, I mean, yours and mine as people to help people understand our personal experience. But if people just don't really get it, if people think that, I don't know, let's say in regards to eating disorders, people just think that it's like a vanity thing and our family like doesn't really believe that it is what it is, you know, something like that. It's not our job to get them to believe that it's an actual thing and that it's a big deal. I know it sucks to not have people in our lives understand us and we can do our best to educate them or tell them about it if they ask, but we can't make people understand. You know what I mean? And so I just want to put that out there. So if anybody out there is really struggling with having family members or friends truly get and accept what they're going through, unfortunately, sometimes we can't. You know, because if they're not willing to learn and not willing to to hear us out and try to apply it and think differently about something, then, you know, they won't. And I know it sucks. I'm not going to pretend that this is like an easy thing, but I'm just letting you know that we don't have to like carry that burden. It's not our job to do that. However, with regard to this question, I think the best way to help people understand is kind of twofold. Now, first is Having, so you've done this talk a lot, it sounds like. And what I always recommend to people when they want to tell someone that they love about their mental illness, whatever it may be, whether it's depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, eating disorder, self-injury, you name it, anything, is to break it into three to five bullet points and keep those things short. Because you shouldn't have to go on and on and on and talk and talk and talk. You should be able to tell them something like, and it may be, this may be part of your work is like paring down what you tell them. So when you talk about depression, you could break it into, and I'm just making this up, this may not be your experience, but it'd be something like, you know, let's say my best friend, Joanna. And I'm like, hey, Joe, yeah, so I was diagnosed with a depression, which my therapist says what that means is that like, that's the reason that I've been feeling kind of down and not enjoying things lately. One bullet point. Moving on to the next one. And so that that really, it was validating for me because I thought, you know, I was just being lazy or something. Second bullet point. Third bullet point would be, um, and yeah, and also we were talking about why, you know, why I isolate and that that's why I haven't texted you back or called you back as often or even seen you as often, you know, depending on the situation, right? And I want you to know I'm really sorry and I'm, I'm working on it. And just getting this diagnosis has been super helpful. Okay, we're done with those. Now, the final bullet point is what do we want from them? So if in my case, I'm talking to my friend Joanna, I would just say at the, I'd end with, so I just really would ask for your patience as I work through this and feel free to ask me any questions you have, you know, along the way, but I'm learning, I'm trying to do better. Boom. That's it. That's our statement. Okay. And if we make it really short like that and we write it down, right, either we keep it in a Google doc, maybe it's in the notes on our phone, whatever it is, have it accessible so that if someone else asks you, you can almost say it in your sleep. Like you don't actually, it doesn't take as much emotional energy for you to describe it, talk about it. We don't have to come up with new words to put to it. We can just say the thing. Okay. And depending on what the person's asking, it may just be one bullet point worth. Right now, I know that there is the caveat that people will ask follow-ups like, well, how long has this been going on or whatever, you know, you can role play that with your therapist and you can even take some time on your own to consider what the follow-up questions you've received are so that again, you're prepared because I really do believe that the preparation ahead of time and the practice and saying it makes that saying it really, really easy and less emotionally taxing so that we don't feel like, oh, I just have to keep saying, explaining myself. And like, it's, and I get it. That is exhausting. Um, 
So if we have a few bullet points that we're just pulling from and drawing from, it should be pretty simple. Now, the second way that I would encourage you to go about it is utilize social media and resources like that. There are wonderful uh, TikToks, uh, YouTube videos you can even use. I mean, feel free to share some of mine, obviously, but I know that not everything I do is going to resonate with everyone, but find a video that speaks to you and share that so that people are asking like, hey, I just don't understand. And hey, you know, what do you mean depression? Isn't I'm going to quote the office here, but isn't that just a fancy word for feeling bummed out? You know, when uh, Dwight and Michael are doing the safety, I think it's what, uh, not safety day, but something like that. Anyway, you you want to have something to share with them so that you're like, no, it's not just being bummed out. It's actually, you know, a clinically diagnosable mental illness and it's an issue that I need help with. And that's why I'm seeing a therapist. So you can have that kind of content. And I don't know about you, but sometimes videos and TikToks and things, memes even can express so much of what I'm feeling without me having to put all the words to it. And it can be really wonderful. And so you know, save those things, save them to your phone or put them in your favorites, make it easily accessible so that if someone asks, you can say, Hey, you know, I can never describe it in the way that it really feels, but there's this video or this, there's this TikTok or there's this meme that just totally does it for me. And I'll, I'll send it to you and let me know what you think. Right. So then we're kind of sharing in that experience, allowing them to digest information on their own, maybe watch something a few times through, I would encourage you to have something that's a little educational so that you don't feel like you have to do that education. Um, but other than that, I feel like within those two realms or both using both of those things, like talking to people in those bullet points or sharing in something on social media that really speaks to you. Um, I think with, with one of those or both, you will hopefully have get, be able to stop this cycle. And of course, it's exhausting. It's emotionally taxing. And also depression is fucking exhausting. So I understand why you're feeling that way. And I want you to feel understood. And so that hopefully will give you a little bit of another way to to not isolate, to feel connected, but also feel understood, which I know is so important. Um, I hope that that helps. Keep me posted. Let me know if you need more ideas. Moving on to question number two. And that is, hi, Katie, how can you not compare your weight and size when you have a friend with an eating disorder? Ooh, I do not have one, but hearing the way my friend talks, okay, I don't have an eating disorder, not friend. I do not have an eating disorder, but hearing the way my friend talks has caused me to become more self-conscious. I still want to keep supporting her and would love some tips on how to remain body positive. I've been doing all the thought reframing, journaling and affirmations, but it doesn't feel quite enough. Okay. Now, I know, so this is going to sound really crazy, and a lot of you might not agree, but the truth is that eating disorders are coping skills. I've talked about this like ad nauseum, all right? It's like so much so you're probably sick of hearing about it, but that's really what they are. And so the fact that you're even drawn to this means something's going on with you. You're probably not feeling your best. What's happening? Tell me about it. Talk to yourself about it. Journal about it. What's going on? What is it we're trying to numb out with with all of this self-conscious shit talking? Because even if you're doing the thought reframing, journaling, affirmations, all that stuff, it's not enough. Something's going on that we need to cope with in a bigger way so that we don't feel pulled in to eating disorder behavior. Because I'll even be honest, as an eating disorder clinician, my spidey senses are alerted when someone in my life engages in that type of behavior or does things that I think are a little disordered eating based. And I recognize it. And I can imagine if I was someone out in the world who had a history of eating disorder or was having a tough time, it would be very easy to let myself get pulled into it. Right. And so I, I understand the trigger of it, right. That sensation where you're like, Ooh, wait, you know, 
I've noticed something and it's kind of uncomfortable. But I want you to dig into what's going on with you because my then my recommendation is actually that we get some more support, whether that's a eating disorder group. There's free ones online. Um, they have, I I want to say it's Montecatini um, and you can look them up. It's I'm going to probably spell it wrong, but Monta, M-O-N-T. I think it's I-K-I-N-I, Montecatini, oh, T-I-N-I. Anyway, you can look up Montecatini. Um, I'm going to, I'm not spelling it right, you guys. <laughs> Okay. M-O-N-T-E-C-A-T-I-N-I. They have a free eating disorder group. I get invitations to it. Um, so I, cause I used to send it to my patients. Um, I get invitations to it every week and they have two a week. And I know that that could be helpful. I know that seeing a therapist can be very helpful. Someone who is, you know, eating disorder informed, like they actually understand eating disorders are able to treat them because not everybody is. I think that that will really help. And then also part of it is having these conversations with your friend. Just because your friend has eating disorder doesn't mean you can't talk about your own struggles or your own things or that that was bothersome or what are they using to help because you wouldn't mind trying some new more resources too. You know, there's, there's conversations to be had. Some just be very leery of the fact that those conversations can turn very competitive and comparison, like comparative really quickly. And I want to make sure that we keep healthy. So if you feel like it can't be, we don't have to talk to that friend, but I'm just saying that that might be another way to to deal with it. And also just making sure that, you know, you maybe don't do things with that friend around food or also, and I know my eating disorder people out there are going to be like, how dare you? (laughs) But I also think it's very fair to say to someone when they're talking in a way that is like super eating disorder based to call them out on it. And when I say call out, I don't mean harshly or abruptly. I mean, something to the effect of, you know, Again, let's pretend it's my friend, Joanna. And I love Joanna. She doesn't have an eating disorder. But let's say I say to Joanna, you know, Joe, I've been noticing, you know, just a lot of like eating disorder talk. And I know you're having a tough time, but I just want to let you know I notice it and I'm happy to help. I just don't know what to do. You know, you can frame it like that where it's like, hey, you're just acknowledging, hey, I'm recognizing this. How can I help you with it? And hopefully, you know, your friend will be understanding. I know their eating disorder will be like, like you, you called me out. How dare you? Whenever one of my patients tells me like my eating disorder hates you, I'm like, good. It means I'm doing my job. Um, and I think as friends, we should kind of feel that way a little bit too, um, because you need a friend to like, let you know that that's happening and be there to support, right? That's not a negative thing. And I think that that, again, I know some people aren't going to like that answer, but that's truly how I feel about it. And so getting into your own support and therapy, recognizing what's going on for you and why this is so triggering. Be curious, not judgmental. Oh, I'm wearing my Be a Detective About It shirt. It has the little Detective Katie on the front. If you're just listening, it's got Detective Katie over my, uh, like the right-hand side of my chest. And then on the back is a bigger one and it says, Be a Detective About It. So you got to be a detective, got to be curious. Don't be judgmental. Recognize what's going on with you because, again, the fact that we can even be pulled into it is an indication that something's going on. And not for nothing, with this year and last, like this, it's actually just been over one entire calendar year has been a shit show. And I think we're all kind of feeling it. And I know people are still under lockdown in a lot of parts of the world and in the states, some places aren't. It's it's hard. And so don't gloss over that as if 
because everyone's going through it that you can't go through it too. We we're all going through it and it's okay to feel how you feel. And if that's really stressing you out, we need to find some outlets for that. We need to find some coping skills. I have my video 25 coping skills that you can just look on YouTube and find it. And that could be a good place to start. Uh, but yeah, just really dig in because usually something else is going on that's pulling us into that way of thinking and allowing us to be triggered and start considering eating disorder like behavior when it's not something we would normally do. And so, yeah, I hope that helps. I know some of those parts of the answer people aren't going to like, but you know, not everything feels good, right? Some things are hard and difficult and uncomfortable. And unfortunately, when we're doing the hard work, sometimes we have to lean into that. I know it's pretty bad but super beneficial. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. And that is, Katie, I cannot remember the first 12 years of my life. Does that mean I've been abused as a child or could I have just had a very boring childhood? (laughs) Sorry that I read it before, but it just made me laugh reading it again. (laughs) A very boring childhood. No, uh, boring childhoods do not mean that we don't have memory. Um, it, it was interesting. So I did a lot of research. For those of you who don't know, I have a book called Traumatize. It's coming out this September. You can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. Uh, I learned because some members of our community have found it on there. I didn't realize it was already available. So pre-order yours now if you want, but I'll be doing a the real like cover reveal and announcement here in June. Okay. So stay tuned. But the even if you have a boring childhood, you'd still have memories. And when I was doing my research for the book, Traumatized, I learned about how how memory works. And you guys, you know, I've talked about Inside Out so much uh, about how I love the way they demonstrate memory. If you haven't seen that movie, I would highly encourage you to watch it. It's a cartoon. It's a Pixar film called uh, Inside Out, Disney Pixar or whatever. Um, And that's it is true that sometimes when things are just boring and we're not using that memory, right? It's There's nothing pertinent. We don't recall it because there is this like uh, old adage when it comes to neuroscience and like your brain, whatever fires, wires. So meaning that when your neurons fire together, like uh, I've talked about it, like a balloon filled with sand, right? When the marble rolls from initiating incident to me using, let's just talk about like depression. So I feel upset by something. I use my depressive uh, symptoms. I roll into that depression feeling, right? That's what happens. And the more I allow that to happen, I know it can feel like we're not allowing it, but I'm just saying that when we let ourselves sit in that and we let it keep happening, that rut gets bigger and bigger. If we have tools, if we have a therapist, if maybe we were on medication and when something bad happens, we use those and we create these other pathways, whatever fires, wires and becomes that rut. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And so when things are fired, and they wire, we have memory of it. And we have uh, a little marble like inside out that's rolled into long term memory. Now, if we don't use something like my Spanish from sixth grade that I learned, or even my Spanish in general, I haven't been using, you know, lo siento, but then that gets lost. And those marbles do roll away, and we forget them, right? You guys remember, um, in Inside Out, if you watched it, her imaginary friend as a kid rolled into the like forgotten memory. It was really sad. But that does happen, right? Things aren't necessary anymore. However, huge swaths of time do not just go away. It's these little bits, right? And we, even if I think back, there's, it's, there's this memory that I have as a kid where I was wearing, and I know this isn't important, but just to give you an idea, 
And if you think about your own, I'm sure you have some of your own, but I'm really young. And I remember maybe like four, okay, four or five. We know long-term memory is not usually formed until about age five. So you usually have like a memory or two around that time frame. And so I remember wearing this, it was a pink dress and it had a tulip on it. And it was like, the dress itself was made out of like things that were cut out. Do you know what I mean? Like a different fabric was cut. The tulip was cut out of and sewn onto the pink fabric. And it was kind of like an overall type dress. And I remember that. And I remember um, having my hair up in like a little pony. And I remember running down my driveway. We used to have this gravel driveway, the old house um, where I grew up. I just remember that. I know that sounds silly, but I think, and I don't remember what I was running to. Right. So it's very, it's very like patchy. It's not all together, but We'll have little blips of things like that all the way through random stuff in our lives, right? Like I remember uh, racing this guy, Graham, he was the fastest guy and I was the fastest girl. And I was like in third grade and we were racing at a recess and I don't know if I beat him or he beat me in my memory. I'm just gonna say I beat him because I can do that. Um, But I remember, and there's little things that you're going to remember because something happened, right? So I remember my dad had been to Alaska for work and he brought me back earrings that had opals in them because it's my birthstone. And they were like little, I don't know if they're little flowers or leaves, but they were little design and they had little opals in them. And I lost one of my earrings during that race with Graham Gowan. And I spent forever, like the next few weeks looking and looking and looking for that earring and never found it. Um, So anyways, I bring that up because we all have those types of memories. If you just think about it and pull yourself back, like what was grade school like? What was your first couple of years? Do you remember, did you play in any sports or were you any plays or music or, you know, like I was a Oompa Loompa. We did uh, a play about Charlie and Chocolate Factory. And I remember I came in with a little bowl and spoon, Oompa Loompa, doompity-doo. Um, and that was my role. <laughs> so think about it. You've got those. They're just not active all the time. They're kind of in that long-term memory, but to have nothing is indicative of trauma. Now, does that mean that trauma means you were abused? Not necessarily. I've talked about trauma in a lot of ways. Trauma can be moving a lot. Trauma can be being bullied. Trauma can be, um, you know, uh, let's, I don't even know, uh, having a lot of surgeries as a child, like, uh, I think I've told you guys over the years, my brother has a cleft lip and palate and he had to have a lot of surgery as a kid. And I'm, I'm sure if I asked him, there's a lot of memories that don't exist there because of all of that. It's super scary. And to this day, he hates doctors and hates things like that. Um, he goes, but doesn't like it. So there are reasons that we cannot remember things. And I would encourage you to be curious about it. I know it can feel when we don't have any like tangible memory, it can feel impossible to even tap in, but I just encourage you to, Connect with your siblings or people that you were friends with back then or a parent, if it's safe, a parent, another family member, someone essentially we're wanting to talk to them because they're our memory keepers because they're at a different stage in their life. They often remember things that we don't remember. Even my brother, because he's older than me, he'll remember things I don't remember. My mom will. Like Sean and I have that podcast, Opinions That Don't Matter, that we do together. And I'll say things and think that I'm like totally on point. And my mom will say, that didn't happen that way. Like that wasn't that aunt. It was this aunt or it was this different year or no, Katie, it didn't turn out that way. That was, you know, and so I won't remember and she'll correct me. And so it's good if we, even if we don't have any memory, it's good that we have those people that we can reach out to check in and find out a, what was going on to cause this complete black chunk of memory and B, you know, fill it in for us a little bit. 
Now, obviously, if we think that someone was abusive, because trauma can mean abuse, I'm just saying it doesn't always mean that that's happening. But someone will tell us that's why it's important to have a few resources, not just one person that we go to, because someone might know more, or they might say, Oh, yeah, remember, your your friend in grade school was in a car accident with their family, and they passed away or something. And I know that sounds horrible. I'm just making up a scenario. And that's a horrible thing to make up. But that can be traumatizing too. remember, trauma doesn't just happen to us It can happen to people that we care about. And so Yes, it could be uh, trauma. It could be abuse. I don't know. But again, don't let a therapist, I know I've talked about this in the past too. Don't let a therapist feed you information and, and cause you to think that something happened. Allow yourself to be a detective about it and be curious about it and allow resources in your life to fill in the blanks a little bit. And you might be surprised what comes up for you when someone does tell you something like just a little... I forget what it was. It was a few weeks ago. My mom corrected something I said on the podcast. And when she said it, I was like, oh my God, you're right. And then all these other memories blah, 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 like bubbled up, right? It's like, I didn't have access to it. Like it was there and I was trying to touch it. And then once my mom sh- shined, like took her light and shined it into that dark room, I was like, oh yes, you know, and we need those people. So that's really, those are my thoughts about it. That's my advice. I hope that it's helpful. It is normal to have uh, memories that are hard to recall fully or to have, you know, a couple years in there as we get older, right? My childhood kind of fades away. But when you start to talk about it with someone, those memories again should come back up. They're just in long-term memory. We They're like in the dark and we need a little light to be shined into so that we can see it. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. I hope that's clear. I know that's a lot to take in, but let's move on to question number three. And that question is, hi, Katie, is it best to work on the quote unquote original trauma to begin with, as opposed to working on its symptoms individually, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, OCD, PTSD, et cetera, in the hope that it will hopefully improve all? Thanks for all you do. Sending love from the UK. Um, yes, if if it's possible. Now, here's the catch on this. So it is best to work on the original trauma or the root. I always call it the root of the issue, right? Because those symptoms are kind of like branches on your tree and the root is trauma. So it is best to work on that trauma first, because if we do that, those symptoms won't be necessary, right? There's no need for them anymore. And they may go away altogether or at the very least improve significantly. Therefore, if we can stay in it and work on that trauma, we'll heal more quickly. But there is this caveat that it may be too much for us. And I don't want any judgment, you know, inside ourselves about that. For some of us, it's too hard to stay present. If you guys don't know, if we dissociate, I've done a ton of videos about dissociation. So if you want to learn more, you could just get on YouTube, Katie Morton dissociation. But it's essentially when our nervous system feels completely overwhelmed and our brain pulls the ripcord, it's like, ah, I'm out of here. And we can feel out of body or out of environment or both. And if that happens all the time, we're not able to work through the trauma. And by working through the trauma, I mean, you know, making sense of it as much as we can in like a timeline or narrative story-like form. And then, you know, either doing some inner child work to kind of heal the childhood wounds or learning new ways to talk to ourselves and new ways to process the emotions or just even allowing ourselves to feel the emotions, right? There's a lot of components to trauma. EMDR is another great resource, but all of that stuff isn't going to work very well if we can't stay present. And so it may be better to start on the symptoms, meaning the dissociation, like the anxiety, depression, eating disorder, the the overwhelm, wherever it's coming from, if we can find ways to cope with that, first, then that that's fine too. There's no judgment around where we start on things, knowing that 
the end result or the end goal is to work through that trauma so that we're not so affected by it in our daily life. Does that make sense? Um, Because sometimes we're only able to deal with the dissociation and try to find some ways to calm our nervous system down. That can take us months. And that's very normal. I don't want you to think like that that isn't good work because that is very good work and that is very difficult. And I've talked endlessly about resources and their importance. And resources are really just coping skills that help us calm down and stay present. And before any trauma work, we need to build up resources. Now, some of us, it's not going to take us very long and it might not be that difficult. And others of us, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be really hard to come up with those things and, and even to calm down, right? We might have a ton, a huge list of coping skills, but they, we still end up feeling like shit when we've done them. Am I right? So be patient with yourself. Give yourself an opportunity to calm feel okay and go back into it, right? And it's that exposure therapy is really the best treatment for trauma or the original trauma that we're talking about right here. So if you're able to do that little by little, it's super uncomfortable and I know it fucking sucks, but just trust me when I tell you that the cool thing about like prolonged exposure or exposure therapy is that we don't have to go back and do it again. The like not to call it recidivism because that sounds bad. Like that's usually applied to jail, but the the thought that we would have to go back into therapy and do the exposures again, that percentage is very, very low. And usually people only have to go back every so often when things get really stressful, right? If let's say like Sean and I are looking to move to Austin, right? We were moving and we were trying to get everything ready. And so that's a really stressful time. And maybe if I had had, you know, a trauma in the past and had some flashbacks, this stress could cause that to come back. Okay, then I go in for a couple sessions and I'm good again, right? It's like a, it's almost like, you know, you go to the doctor when, oh, my throat's a little sore and I feel a little, and you go in, you get, you get checked out, you get treated and you come back out. And so it's the same type of thing with this. And I think that is really fucking cool. And it's awesome because otherwise I think a lot of us can feel like, oh, therapy just goes on forever and trauma work just takes forever. And yes, it takes time. I'm not pretending it's easy work, but I'm just saying that I think there is something for me and maybe for you too that's like hopeful about the fact that it's like a, once we're done, we're done or finished. My mom would always uh, correct me when I'd say done and say, Katie, only a turkey is done. You're finished. So when you're finished, (laughs) anyways, I hope that that makes sense. Um, It is best to work on it, but resources are also important in summation here. And so either way, working on any part of it is helpful, but the real root, if we have to heal that and or extinguish that in order for the other symptoms to stop. Otherwise, it's like um, if you pull out, if you pull a weed out of the ground and you don't pull the roots out, it'll just grow another weed once you've ripped off the top. And I feel like pulling, like dealing with anxiety, depression, if we know the root is trauma, we're just like trimming back the weeds and they're still going to keep growing. And if we want to get rid of it, we have to pull it out root ball and all. Does that make any gardeners out there? Does that resonate with you? Okay, let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. And it asks, do triggers only work when you're in a bad mental headspace? Hmm. Sometimes I can be around my triggers and be okay. And there are other times when I'm anxious to be around them. Love your podcast. Oh, I'm so glad. Yay. Okay. This is a great question. And the truth is triggers only trigger us (laughs) or work when we aren't our best. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be in a bad mental headspace, but that doesn't, that that's enough. I, the real way that I would describe it is triggers are effective and trigger us when we don't feel as resilient. And that can mean a lot of things. That's why headspace could be one of them. But I'd also say if we're just super tired, we're more, uh, 
what's the word? We're more, more vulnerable to a trigger, right? If I haven't eaten, I'm even, you know, when I'm hangry, not good. If I haven't been taking my medication regularly, that's not good. If I haven't been, um, you know, I haven't seen my therapist, let's say, it's not good. If any of these things and bad mental headspace, there's a bunch of things. If we think about our basic self-care, like have I showered? Have I slept? Have I eaten? Have I drank enough water? Am I taking medication as prescribed when I'm supposed to take it? Have I had some social connection? Have I seen my therapist or my supports? Have I journaled or done my coping skills recently? Am I doing things to make myself feel better? Have it, are, are those things happening? Because if they are, then... Are, we've built up enough resilience that even when we're triggered, like you said, you can be around them and be okay. That's where that comes from because you you do all these things to take care of yourself and well done, you know, five gold stars. Um, but then other times we're just not our best and it, we're more uh, sensitive or more vulnerable to them. And so that's really how triggers work. And that's why we can be triggered. Um, so they, yeah, they only work when we just aren't at our best because our defenses are down, right? And we don't have all our tools and resources uh, on hand. And then we can be more upset by them. And, you know, again, just show yourself a little compassion. We all have days where we're more anxious, more easily upset, where we can be tearful, even, you know, yours truly, like I'm, I've told you guys over the years, but if any of you are new, I don't have all my shit together either, just because I know better doesn't mean I always do better. And I know that a lot of people want to think that, you know, therapists have all their shit together and that we're, we're perfect, but that's not it. I'm a human too. And I, I believe acknowledging that humanness makes me a better therapist, makes other therapists better therapists. Right. And so, you know, I can be triggered as well. I can be easily upset. I can fly off the handle. You know, you catch me hungry and tired. Mm -mm, That is not good. So, you know, recognizing that 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 happens to all of us. And we can do as much as we can to build up that resilience so that those days or weeks or or time periods when we're just a little more stressed or not able to take care of ourselves the way we want, that it doesn't affect us as deeply as it could because we have that built up. I feel like resilience is like a bank account and we're putting it in our savings account for later when we might need it. And so that's why I always pays to take care of yourself. And I know it's exhausting. And I know sometimes it's so frustrating. I was one of my friends, Caleb, who has a channel called the fitness marshal where he does like these workouts. He was posting on Instagram the other day, like, why is it that with, you know, exercise, we have to do it. And then we have to do it again forever. And I feel that way about mental health stuff too. Sometimes it's like, why with self-care and coping skills, do we have to do it and then do it again forever? Because it's just basic care and it's stuff that we have to do. And I, yes, I know it's exhausting. Yes, there's days when I don't want to do it either. But sometimes I say to myself, and I don't know if this helps you guys. I did a video about this a long time ago, but I do it for future me because I know that she'll be super grateful. And I can think that way sometimes. Just the other day, I didn't want to do my laundry. It was like Friday and I was tired and it'd been a long week. And Jules was coming over to go over some things. And I was like, God, I just wanted to lay down and have a nap. And I was like, you know what? future Katie's not going to want to do her laundry either. Let's get it started. It means you only, you only have one load that you really have to do. So let's just do that load. You'll be done in an hour and a half. Move on, you know, and I did. And I was so glad I was finished my laundry by like 6 p.m. on a Friday and then I could relax and then I went to bed early. You know, I mean, I can take care of myself and take care of those things and do it for future me. And maybe that maybe that gets you gives you some ideas to build that resilience back up so that triggers don't affect you as much. I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number six. And that question is, hi, Katie. 
How do you know when a relationship is beyond repair? What if you're prone to projection? As you don't know if you're thinking that this person is toxic or not, particularly in the case of childhood trauma. Thank you, love from Australia. Oh, I love Australia. I can't wait to go back. Travel, miss, miss traveling. Okay. How do you know when a relationship is beyond repair? Now, the truth about this is, well, well, there's a couple, and we can get really in the weeds on this, but I want to try to stay above it so we can stay clear. We can get through this in a way that makes sense for you. So I'm going to do my best because you know me. I like to ramble. I like to get in the weeds. Okay. Relationships take two people, right? It takes effort from both sides. We know a relationship is beyond repair when the other person is not putting any effort into it. That's the truth. That's it. I know that sucks. I know that's hard to hear. I know it's really hard to let go of those relationships, romantic or not. Uh, friendships can be just as, if not more painful than romantic relationship loss. It's, but they're both, they both happen and they both can happen for the same reasons. We have to have some kind of equal breakdown of, of who's putting that effort in, right? Like I know I need to check in on my friends as much as I'm hoping they'll check in on me. And that's how relationships are built, right? I ask you how you're doing. You ask me how I'm doing. We get together, we chat, we FaceTime, we connect. I'm there for you. I pick you up from the airport. You know, there's all these things that we do for each other, not in keeping a laundry list of things. I'm not, you know, with my friend Rocio, I'm not looking at a laundry list. It's just something that you know you can count on. You can reach out to them. You have support. You have them. They have your back. It goes back and forth. Now, if you're the only one, if they're like a black hole or what I would call like an emotional vampire where they only call you for help and they're never there when you need them for anything, that relationship's beyond repair. If this person has, you know, gaslit you in some way where they're like, you don't remember that correctly and, and they don't ever apologize. Like those are all signs and symptoms of something that's beyond repair as well. And that's also potentially like narcissistic traits or antisocial personality disorder where there's just no empathy or for like, they don't ask for forgiveness because they don't ever believe they've done anything wrong. That can be a reason that a relationship is beyond repair. But again, I believe going back to my original statement, it is all about them not putting in that effort right? Because if someone's not going to apologize, that's effort on a relationship. I've apologized to friends for things that maybe I wish they would apologize to for things and, you know, but I'll eat the crow. I'll say it. I wish it didn't hurt their feelings. Yes, it sucks. I'm uncomfortable. I wish I didn't have to have this conversation, but I apologize. I fucking swallow my pride. I say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be such a dick. I was doing my best to, you know, and I didn't think of it in this way. And I, I hate that that hurt your feelings and I'm sorry right? I acknowledge the worst thing people can do is do what I call a pretend apology where you say, I am so sorry if you found that upsetting, or I'm so sorry if that hurt your feelings, especially if they've already told you it did. <laughs> that's like not an apology. I talked about this on the Patreon live stream last month, how that's like a pretend apology. It's almost like worse. And narcissists tend to do that a lot. So just be aware of someone who will say, you know, I'm sorry if that was hurtful for you. Cause that's not really an apology. You're like, I already told you it was hurtful. So just say you're sorry, right? It's not that hard. I'm sorry. So that's why, you know, it's okay to say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, you can say, I didn't mean for it to, I, I'll say that a lot. If it's something unintentional, right? Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for that to hurt your feelings. I, I would never have done it if I knew that that was going to be the repercussions. And, and I hate that we're even having this conversation because it's uncomfortable, right? You just got to apologize. And so if the other person won't, 
you know, that's not a good relationship to be in. And also then on the flip side, okay, so again, trying to stay out of those weeds, I gotta pull it back on topic. So if the other person isn't willing to put in the work, the relationship's beyond repair. On the flip side, if you are not willing to put in the work, the relationship is beyond repair. And you have to be honest with yourself. I'll even like too often, we stay in relationships that we don't actually like, or that don't really help us or mean anything to us because uh, comfortability maybe, or oh, it's just, I don't know. I just talk to them every so often, you know, and we just kind of linger in these relationships that aren't actually helpful for us. Or people stay in loveless marriages for years just because out of convenience, because it's just more work to get out of it. And I'm here to tell you that that that's not healthy for us. That's not what we're meant to do. We're meant to have people in our lives that are supportive and and loving and offer that connection that we all as humans need. And if we're not getting it from one person, we're going to try to find it from another. And that doesn't mean cheating. That can mean that. But it also can just mean like, you know, we seek it out in other relationships to fill that one void that we're not getting it from. And so if you don't want to put the energy into your relationship, it's over to and it's beyond repair, because we're not going to want to repair it. That's like showing up to, you know, to a home that's going to be built without any tools or wood or nailed anything. And you're like, yeah, I'm just going to hang out here for a bit. <laughs> you're like, you're not really repairing. You're not really helping anything. So like, why are you here? Right? Why are you here? Why are you in this relationship? So think about that and be honest. Um, because th- that's really the truth. And it doesn't even matter. Like she says, if you're prone to projections, you don't know if, if you're thinking that this person is toxic or not, just consider the facts. We don't have, it's not about, I know projection can feel like, oh, I'm just putting this onto someone else. Even the fact that you're aware of that and you're worried about that makes me wonder if maybe you're a little people pleaser type like me, where we always assume that that it's like us, that we're the ones that are to blame and we're always the first to apologize, even if it's uncomfortable. Like, just ask yourself these few questions. Do they put in the same amount of effort? Do they apologize when they've done something that's hurtful? And do we have the energy and the oomph to put into this relationship to fix it? Those hopefully... Those are the key to to answering your question. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And that is, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing great. I am doing pretty great. Just a little tired today, but I'm gonna go to bed early. I wanted to ask, do you think talking to a therapist about the details of the abuse I suffered for three years will help me get over it or make peace with it? I've never really talked in detail about the abuse I sustained with anybody, mostly because it's very hard to do it, of course, and because it happened when I was very, when I was really little. So there are things that I really don't recall. It's also very normal. But lately I realized I do want to talk about it. I want and need to verbalize it, but I don't know how to get to it. Even though I want to, I feel like I can't, I feel like it would be pointless, but really I don't. And I've been wondering if it would help me to talk about it. I hope this makes sense. Thank you for everything you do. It totally makes sense. So just so you know, that experience that you're having is very common. A lot of people feel this way. I want to share it because I think it'll be healing. And I almost feel like I need to, like, I just need to get it out. But then we go to do it. And we're like, oh my God, and you just can't, right? That's very, very common. There are a couple ways to kind of circumvent that and go through, like sneak around the wall that we have up, like the defense mechanism or uh, refusal to allow ourselves to be any bit vulnerable. And that can be by emailing our therapist or doing what I call doorknob confessions. I've told you guys about these before, but they're very common in therapy. So therapists are used to dealing with them. But at the very end of your session, as you're leaving, you've already paid and everything you're about to walk out. You can be like, hey, therapist, I was abused 
for three years. And I'd like to talk about it, but not today. See you next week. Burp, you skirt out. I know that sounds crazy. I know you're like, wow, people do that. Oh, yes, all the time. All the time. Even patients that I've been seeing for a long time will still do that. And I'm like, wow, okay, make a note, bring it up next session. So if you're not quite ready and you kind of need some time to be like, <sighs> after you say anything, that gives you that time. You can go to your car, you can do some breathing, you can put on some music. <sighs> you got it out. You know it's going to happen. And yes, that week can be really shitty. And I've heard from a lot of my patients, they're like, I knew this was going to happen and I've just been building up all week. I know it fucking sucks. I don't want to lie to you and tell you that talking about abuse is easy peasy lemon squeezy because it's not. But it is helpful and it is normal to want to say it out loud, to talk about it, to make sense of it, to feel heard, validated and understood. It's so powerful. That's the power of therapy. And so I would encourage you to bring it up like that, either through if you can email your or text your therapist, I'd encourage you to do that. If you if they allow for that, then just do that the day before your appointment. So it gives them time, but also put in there like, you do not have to reply. I just need to get this out or do doorknob confession, or you can write it down and bring it in and just read from it. Those are some ways to kind of get around that. And I really feel like doing one of those will really help. And it is the beginning of the healing process. You, I do think, so then one of the questions is, do I think talking to a therapist about the abuse will help you get over it? I do. Now, I the more research I have done, just FYI, is that just talking about it and put, and I'm not saying just as like downplaying the difficulty in doing so. I'm just saying that just doing that, that one thing, if we just talk about it with our therapist, let's say that means we put a trauma timeline together. We, you know, put it into story form and narrative form. We make sense of some of the missing bits of memory. Maybe we talk to other people in our lives and, and fill it in or whatever. Doing that helps and it helps a huge amount, but over 40% of people do not find like full remission of their PTSD symptoms just by doing that. There needs to be something else like EMDR or somatic experience or schema therapy or some inner child work or attachment-based work. Some other type of trauma-informed therapy needs to take place as well. Now, again, that means that, you know, I just almost say half. So let's just say half of people do find full resolution. So that could be you, but I, I just want to, you know, temper expectations. So you know that when you go into therapy, you kind of not know what to expect, but if you still find yourself struggling after talking it through, that's okay. That's very normal. Half of people have that experience and that doesn't mean all is lost. That just means maybe we need some like ancillary support or therapy to push us through and get us over that finish line where then we feel at peace with it. And I kind of like that phrasing even to make peace with it. I think that's a good way to look at it because a lot of people always assume, well, will I just like get over it and it won't bother me anymore? And the answer is yes. But when it comes to trauma work, the goal is really to get to a point where it has no emotional charge for you. Meaning if something was that was quote unquote used to be a trigger, right? We're using the term triggered. If I was triggered, it could happen and it wouldn't be upsetting anymore. It's not triggering or something, um, you know, would normally give me a flashback. It doesn't affect me that way anymore. I can talk about it. And if someone brings up a time period, I can be like, oh yeah, no, that wasn't the period when I was abused. So I don't actually remember that. But yeah, you know, we can just say it like that. It's almost 
in the best way I can describe it personally is like when I lost my dad, even the, the, even the mention of it, like when people would say something like, Oh, where were you last week? I'd be like, Oh, my dad died. And I had to go home for his funeral. Like I would like, Ooh, like could barely get it out without crying. And then over time, obviously it was a lot of work in therapy, but also just letting myself grieve and feel it. I could talk about it and not completely break down. And that's the goal for therapy when it comes to trauma and the trauma work. And so I really think verbalizing it is a key piece of that. And it's going to be super beneficial as you work through it. And it will help you. It's it's part of that roadmap to get you toward making peace with it. So I do highly recommend it. And I think it could be helpful. And hopefully my answer, it makes sense and is helpful too. Okay, moving on to question number eight says, hi, Katie, I haven't talked to my parents for two and a half years because of the trauma they caused me in my childhood, such as emotional abuse and neglect. My sister's wedding is in a few months and I will have to see them there. I'm very nervous about it and I don't know what to do. The wedding will be small, so it'll be hard to avoid them. Me and my sister are really close and I don't want to miss the wedding because of how nervous I am. Also, my boyfriend will be there and they do not agree with Oh, they do not agree with me being gay. I'm so sorry. They have not met him and I don't want them to say anything disrespectful to him. What should I do? Okay. First of all, I'm proud of you for, you know, cutting contact with them. If it sounds like that was probably a healthy thing for you. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to do that. Again, if you're out there and you're in a similar, similar situation, you're like, I don't want to cut ties. No one has to do that. I'm just saying that if it's a good choice for you and you're able to do it, I'm very proud of you. I know that can be difficult. Now, when it comes to this, I don't want you missing the wedding either. I want you to go and I want you to talk to your boyfriend ahead of time and let him know. So he's a little bit more prepared, right? Like I, I want him to know that if they say something rude or jerky to him, he knows where he knows the source right? Consider the source. Um, it could, it could really deepen your relationship too, because I think being honest about this will be important. And then everyone's prepared. And my best advice, because, you know, we've all been in situations where we have to go to events. Like I had a friend that I was no longer friends with, and I had to go to a baby shower for the only mutual friend that we had. And the way that I went about it, I'm going to give you like a couple of options, but personally, the way that I went about this, and I know it's not the same, but I'm just giving you an example is at the very beginning, the first time I saw her, I just went right up to her and was like, hi, it's so good to see you. I just, I had it planned already. What I was going to say, asked a couple of simple questions, walked away, never talked to her again that whole day. That could be, because for me, getting that out of the way where I just went up and did it, then my nerves were gone. I wasn't anxious the rest of the day and I could enjoy myself. So that could be something that you do practice it with your boyfriend, say it back and forth with him so that he knows what your plan is. He knows what you're going to do. And then you can have fun at the wedding because weddings are the fucking best. So that's one option. Then the second option and something I've also done in situations where I've had to be around people that I don't talk to anymore. Super awkward, right? Is I just completely pretend they're not there. Now, the reason that with this last friend that I did at the way that I did is because ignoring them makes me only more anxious. I don't know about you. I'm just speaking personally. So pretending like they don't exist, like as if they're somebody I don't know, just it, I didn't, wasn't able to enjoy myself in the way that I wanted, but that might work for you. So those are really two things. And then the third just because I'm adding this and it's not really a way to deal with them, but it's more a way to help yourself cope is to have things that you can do resources and emergency planning. Okay. And what I mean by that is 
have some things that you and your boyfriend, like, hey, we're going to go to the bathroom for a second, or we're going to step outside, or I'm going to go in the back and get something, or, you know, you can like remove yourself from a situation and breathe and take a minute, you know, you could grab a glass of champagne and go somewhere where they won't know where you went, you know, hide out a little bit, take a breather. That's okay. Um, or emergency, if she hits the fan and someone's super disrespectful or rude or says something that's super hurtful, you know, how do we get out of there? How do we, you know, not ruin it for your sister, but at the same time, protect ourselves? Does that mean that maybe we just like go out? I don't know where the wedding is, but like, for instance, Sean and I's wedding was in Calamigos Ranch. And like, you could walk off onto the property a little bit. So like, do you leave for a bit, like for an hour and then come back? You know, what do we do? Or how do we leave if we need to leave? I mean, you know, yes, we don't want to ruin it for her and it would suck to miss any of it. But we, again, we have to have some plans. We hope for the best, prepare for the worst. But those are just some things that I would encourage you to to plan for and definitely talk to your boyfriend ahead of time so that he knows what's happening too. It's really important because I don't want him to feel uh, blindsided or, you know, not know the situation. And I think not only will it help him personally, emotionally prepare, but then he can be there for you in the way that you need and just know ahead of time and also help you role play things and, and plan for the conversations if you if you plan to have them. All of that can be really, really helpful. Um, yeah. And also, you know, let him know that if they say something disrespectful, that they're just dirtbags and you don't want them in your life anyway. So, you know, you can like apologize preemptively. <laughs> okay. I hope that helps. I'm so sorry. I, stuff like this sucks. Forced family functions, man. <laughs> One of my friends was like, it's the FFFs. FFFs. Who was it was saying that on the Patreon live stream? The FFFs. Forced family functions. It was funny though. Anyway, we all loved it and laughed. But feel free to use that. that got the Fs. A case of the Fs. Now, the comment on this question said, I'm in a similar situation and have a follow-up question. My mom has caused me multiple traumas in my life, but she's disabled and I'm her carer. Ooh, is there a way to not have to do that? Um, I want to go no contact at least for a short period, but I feel like staying in contact with her is inevitable due to her disability. Any advice on going no contact in this situation? Yes. Um, first of all, I would try to find a way to get out of being her carer. Now, I know as a clinician, I've had many patients who are older adults who have, you know, their own disability in one form or another, or find themselves, you know, completely disabled and unable to work. And you, you can have other care that is paid through their, well, in the States, at least paid through the government, like Medicare and Medi-Cal in, in California, at least we can have carers that take care of them. And you can have a, what, I don't know if they call it a guardian ad litem. I don't know if that's with, just with children, but it's like they're, they can have a conservator, like someone who takes care of things for them that's appointed by the state so that you don't have to do it. And so I would really encourage you to look into those things so that you can untangle yourself so that you are not responsible for this person who, you know, caused multiple traumas for you. That's just really unhealthy. And then you'd be able to go no contact. And I know a lot of people might think, Katie, that's really harsh or, you know, but it's a, it's a parent. Hey, if a parent's an abuser, we don't owe them anything. I know I've said that a ton of times, but if you need to hear it, hear it again. If a parent has been abusive, that you don't owe them anything. Honestly, if a parent's been terrible and if a parent, just a parent in regular life, not even an abusive parent, we don't owe them things. We 
can want to have a relationship and be supportive of one another because of the relationship that we have built together over years, both putting in energy and effort. And don't forget, parents chose to have us, right? Like, you chose to birth the baby and we know what, like, I'm acutely aware of all the work that goes into having a child. Hence why Sean and I don't have children, right? I have chosen to not, but if I did, I would choose to have the baby. And then that's on Sean and I to to do our best and be there for them, right? And to support them. And, and that's not, my child doesn't owe me things because I like wiped their butt and fed them and stuff. Trust me, I was a live-in nanny and a babysitter since I was like 12 years old. There's plenty of butts I've wiped and mouths I've fed. And I don't think those children owe me a damn thing. And parents are no different. Okay. Um, sorry, I'd get really fired up when people feel like, but they're my parents and I owe them. I'm like, no, but if they decide to be a good family member and friend and build a relationship with you, then you have that relationship. There's no guilt and owing in that. That that should not be part of it. And so in the case of this mom who, you know, caused you multiple traumas, I would encourage you to look into the resources that are available. And when they, when they ask you, because usually people will say this, well, aren't you able to? You can say, no, I am no longer able to. And that's just the answer. No, I'm sorry. I'm no longer able to. This is causing me too much harm or I physically am not able. And, you know, that's your choice. You don't, just because they're your parent doesn't mean that you have to be their carer. You can have people that are appointed so that you don't have to weather that and, and hold that and essentially carry that burden. Okay. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for both of you dealing with that kind of stuff with family is so stressful. I'm, I feel for you. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, hey, Katie, how do you prepare for the death of a terminally ill loved one? Ugh, I actually have a video about this. A member of my family reached out because we had, um, I don't even know how we'd ne necessarily be related. Do you ever have like fourth cousins and stuff? I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But anyway, it was kind of like that, like a, a my cousin's grandma, <laughs> but like on not, on not, it's like my third cousin's grandma. So not even like close. And anyway, a totally different set of grandparents, not my own. Um, he had Alzheimer's and um, had a lot of complications and just wasn't doing well. And he was terminally ill. And it was really hard because his wife was his carer and she was exhausted, obviously, because it's super taxing to be someone's caregiver. Um, and she had this guilt after the passing of him where she felt kind of some relief. And so I think I have a video about um, relief after the death of a loved one or I think if you'd probably got on YouTube and just put in Katie Morton relief death, it'd come up. I know that sounds really like horrible, but I have a video about that. So there's some of that. Um, but when it comes to preparing ahead, I felt like I kind of did this with my dad because he'd had a ton of health complications. If you guys don't know, he had one of his kidneys out when I was like 12 or 13. It was a tumor on it and it had to be removed. And then his other kidney started to have issues when I was probably in high school. And then by the time I was like finishing college, he had to have uh, go into dialysis, which then it was just like, you know, it's so hard on his body and slowly he, and then he ended up having a heart attack. So, and there was a lot of other stuff, but that's the gist. Um, and getting into therapy is number one. That was like a goddamn lifesaver for me. I went to therapy once a week for a long time and then twice a week for about two years right before his passing and after. Um, so that's key. Second is talking to people about it, not just a therapist. Like I talked to my friends a lot about it. I'd cry to them. I'd call my mom and cry about it. Um, I talked to Sean at the time, Sean and I just started dating. Uh, 
my dad died in September. Sean and I started dating in June. So it was a little early to like share everything, but I would just cry about things. And he was super supportive. God bless him. Sean was just, you know, I don't deserve him. He's so good. Um, and so letting yourself do that is really key. I journaled a ton. I wrote everything out. Um, I wrote letters I never sent. I wrote some letters that I did send. I wrote a letter to my dad about how I was so sad that he wouldn't, you know, get to see all the things that I get to do in my life. And I, I wish that his health would improve and he would take better care of himself because he was not a big fan of the doctors and he would wait to go in until things were bad. You guys, it was a disaster. Um, you know, he's like, I'm sick of the doctors. I was like, so... <laughs> join the club. Um, anyway, writing those letters, sending some, not sending others, spending time is really key. Like I went home a lot cause I kind of knew I did that with my grandpa too. I just knew cause his COPD was getting so bad. I, you, you kind of know, and it's, even if you don't want to admit it, you know, so spend that time. You know, I think that's the one thing that people live with regret is just the time that was lost. Like, oh, I didn't get to see them that much. I didn't get to do that. I didn't get to talk to them. Do those things. Call them. Like, you know, my grandma's getting older. She's 86. And I, I talk to her at least once a week. Um, and, you know, when Sean and I drove up to Washington, I, I spent every Friday with her and it was wonderful. And then I'd see her more than once a week even then. But we'd have Fridays always. Um and it was nice. And so spending that time, I cannot recommend that enough. And letting yourself feel it, talking to other people who you know are going through it too, getting into therapy. Uh, and then I guess the final thing is just knowing that it sucks and it's okay. Because grief is fucking weird. I I don't think I ever even do it justice when I try to explain it, but it's it's not something that like you know, in normal situations, when things are stressful or bad, there's like a beginning, middle, end of them. Like, oh, there's a triggering event. Something's happening. Oh, I'm stressed out. Oh, I feel like this is never going to end. I'm in it. And then it comes to an end and we're like, oh, grief is weird. Grief like comes in and you're overwhelmed at the beginning. It's like a, a flood, like, oh, and it like wipes you out and you feel super exhausted. And then like a month later, for me, at least with my dad, um, a month later, you start to be like, okay, I can kind of see my way. Oh, this is a bad chunk of time. And something reminds you of them or you stumble across some of their clothing that you kept because you're sentimental and can't help yourself. And then you go, okay. And then you're okay again. Then, ugh, you know, or you are particularly tired one day and you start talking about them and ugh, you want to cry. And so it doesn't just like come and go, or it doesn't just like come for a period and go, it, it pops in and out. And I would, I'd love to tell you that, oh, you know, after this, it'll, you'll only feel sad for a certain period of time. There's no judgments. I feel like almost all grief is complicated and we miss them and it's, it's, it's terrible. And we also maybe feel relieved because they're terminally ill. Like my dad was not doing well for years. And in a way I felt relief for him because it was so uncomfortable. And the dialysis was, he said he felt like an old man and it's, it's sad. Right. And so there's mixed emotions with it. Um, so let yourself feel it. Know that there's no right or wrong way to feel and being happy afterward, like having periods of time when you don't think about them does not make you a bad person. It means that you are grieving and your life, whether you like it or not, has to go on and it's okay to feel joy again. It's okay to love again. It's okay to go on vacation and laugh like a belly laugh again. That doesn't mean that you, it's, it's not one or the other. It doesn't mean you don't miss them or that you don't hurt. You, you can miss them and it can hurt and you can still enjoy your life, right? And they would want that for you anyway. Um, I hope that that helps a little bit. It's hard and I preemptively am sorry for your loss. It's not something that, that I anybody enjoys going through. Ugh. 
Okay, let's get into our final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, I'm asking for a friend who's worried for her privacy. What is considered incest? Is getting harassed as an adult by your own father incest? I'm 24 and have been back at my parents due to the COVID crisis or due to the COVID crisis. The other day I was chilling on a couch watching TV as my father entered the room and stayed uh, and started playing with my feet. As a child, we used to have this joke where he would uh, play and he'd check my toes to see whether they were smiling or not. I got that he was trying to joke and replicate old play. Nevertheless, I got uncomfortable because I was only wearing a long t-shirt. I pulled my, uh, my foot off, but he wouldn't let go. Instead, he froze or I froze. Who knows? His eyes locked on my crotch. I wasn't wearing any pants. And it even seemed that he was moving my leg to get a better view. Suddenly, my mom entered the room furious and he let my ankle go. I left them to shout out, shouted, blah, blah, blah. I left them to shout at each other. I'm feeling so confused and uncomfortable. Nothing similar has ever happened before. Perhaps I misinterpreted the whole thing. Do you have any insight to give? Is it normal to be this upset about what happened? Does this mean that my father sexually desires me? Now, the fact that you're uncomfortable, it's interesting. Things like this are tricky. Now, do I want to immediately call this incest? No. But I do want to acknowledge and validate your discomfort. And there is something to like, I'll even be honest, because it's it's different when you're going through puberty as a kid of the opposite sex of your parent, right? Um, even with my mom, it, you're just uncomfortable in your body and you don't want anybody to see you naked and you feel very uncomfortable with it. Right. And we're, I was very bashful in that way. Um, and my mom used to burst into my room, you know, and I'd be like, ah, knock, please. You know, we do that. Kids do that. I think we can all like nod. Yeah. I remember that. And that was uncomfortable. So there is something to when we become an age where we recognize that, um, that, that, that our dad is a different sex and we are, uh, you know, a little uncomfortable with that fact, right. Cause when we're kids, we don't think about anything like that. And, I don't want to read into it too much, but that could be where the discomfort comes from. Okay. There's many explanations right there. If you don't have any recollection or memory of him hurting you as a child or abusing you in any way, then that's where I would assume it came from. And also like, even if you felt like, I don't know what, what the situation, I wasn't there to see it, but I do know that some people will say like, like if we asked your dad about it, let's say he might say, Oh, I just realized she wasn't wearing pants and was like, Oh, you know, and that's why he looked there could have been like, a, Oh, you know, sometimes we do that. We notice something, we look longer than normal and we move on. But again, I don't want to discredit or make you feel like you're making this up because you, it's possible that you are not. Now, I don't know why your mom was upset with him or what was going on with that. That's something that I would need more information about. But because we're older and because we're not children anymore, we can't be like as comfortable at home. Someone said this in a comment below this about like, we can't be as comfortable at home as we were as a child because things are different. And so that may mean that when you're at home, you're always wearing some kind of shorts or pants. I know that that for a lot of people can be like, but it was just her dad and he was just kidding. Well, yes, but if we're uncomfortable with uh, the lack of clothing that we have on, then we need to put more clothing on period. So that we're comfortable. So that if our dad comes up and plays with our toes and jokes, we don't, f there's none of this, right? And then we don't feel that. And we don't have that weird worry where we're like, why am I making this weird? Am I making it weird? Did something happen? Uh, right. And so just removing ourselves from those types of situations will be really helpful. Like I would encourage you if you, when you shower at home to, you know, 
wrap a towel around, go to your room or wear a, a robe and just be aware of that because you are an adult now. And, you know, that is uncomfortable for you and things are different. You're a woman, not a child. And so that's a little bit different. And I don't, I don't know. I can't really answer the questions of like, does that mean that he sexually desires you? I'd, I'd like to think not because I always like to believe in the best in people, especially if we don't have any history of anything like this. Um, but again, we just have to be cognizant of the fact that that we're an adult and we should wear clothes around the house because it's just different. I don't know if anybody else agrees with me, but when I read this, um, you know, incest is when there is like a sexual act. And I let me get the exact uh, definition because I don't want to misrepresent it, but uh, it's sexual relations between people classed as being too closely related to marry each other. So the crime of having sexual intercourse with a parent, child, sibling, or grandchild. So in this case, is it incest? No. Is it uncomfortable? Uh, I don't even want to call it sexual, just an uncomfortable encounter. Yes. Are there ways that we can ensure that this doesn't happen again? Hopefully. And that's what we're going to try to do. And so I think that that, you know, him playing with your feet was him being your dad. And that's just what he was. And I, you know, um, but if you're getting harassed by him, if he's doing things and making you uncomfortable and like you've said no, or, you know, he does stuff like this all the time and, or pulls on your clothes or things like that. Those are things that would worry me. This me, this scenario that you're talking about just sounds a little more casual and not so, you know, uh, pushy or upsetting in that way. Like, there's no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You didn't really like fight back, you know, um, you just got uncomfortable and it made you uncomfortable and you're worried about it. And so again, you know, um, I think he was joking and trying to, you know, like you said, replicate old play, but you tried to pull your foot and you wanted him to let go and he didn't. And I think there's ways that we can make sure that you feel more safe in those scenarios, like wearing pajama pants or shorts or something like that. Um, yeah. But if something does continue, or again, like I said, if you feel like the, this type of play or touch becomes too much, you have to let someone know. And I would encourage you again, like, you know, talk to somebody, maybe if you are able to move out of the house, move out of the house, um, you know, wear clothing all the time. Like there are things that we can do to protect ourselves, make sure that we're not alone with them. Those are all things that I would encourage you to do if, you know, if, if you really think this is an issue, because again, I wasn't there and it's hard to know intent. Um, but based on that scenario it, and what you've told me, it doesn't sound like incest. It sounds maybe like a little bit of play that made you uncomfortable and we need to find a way to ensure that never happens again. Okay. And then there was a comment on this that says, I also wonder what is the line between an affectionate dad and boundaries being crossed? When I was a little girl, I had to share a room with my dad. Now, this is where it's bizarre for me, you guys. My mom didn't want to sleep with him. So he slept in my room or in one of my siblings, but mostly with me. Now I'm an adult and I feel really uncomfortable when he gets physically close. Then a deep anguish takes over and it becomes hard for me to think and function. I wish I didn't feel this way. He's really nice and caring. He loves to spend time alone with me and he's very affectionate. He always tells me how pretty I am, how lucky my husband is and how much he loves to spend time, with, time alone with me. He loves to hug me and even just to be physically very close. But I feel so uncomfortable. 
The more I try, the worse it gets. My therapist says that those reactions could be signs of past abuse. Yes, but I don't have any clear memories um, about it. Only confusing nightmares. See, that's an indicator to me of abuse. Another thing that confused me a lot is that some months ago, I told my mom that I'd been sexually abused by a nanny when I was little. Um, and my dad got really upset for me with me for disclosing this, which is odd. He said, I shouldn't have brought this up after all these years and that I could ruin someone's life by saying something like that. Okay. So that, and there's one more comment below this, but let's get into this one. Now this is different. And here's why, because there are some, you know, confusing nightmares. I'm very curious about that. And the discomfort that you feel constantly about your dad and, and the fact that your mom didn't want to sleep with him. So he slept in your room, almost as if you were the wife. Someone commented that. And I agreed with them that like, it's, it's like a role reversal and it's very unhealthy. And there's something in the family dynamic here. There's something very wrong. And um, that should never be the way that I know that in certain cultures, families all sleep in the same room together. And that's one thing. But this was like your mom did not want to sleep with him. So he slept with you as if you were like the surrogate wife, which I find very bizarre. Um and very unhealthy. And I would, I would continue talking with your therapist about this to see what we can uncover. And, um, the fact that you remember that you were abused by a nanny, you know, I'm, first of all, I'm sorry that, that happened to you, but his reaction is very inappropriate. And, you know, to be upset for you disclosing this, no, it's you, it happened to you and you have every right to talk about it and you should be able to talk about it and tell whoever you feel the need to tell and talk to. Um, and that could be the reason for the nightmares and the discomfort as well. I don't want to assume that your father abused you or anything, but I think it's worth continuing to be curious. Again, not not judgmental. Um, you know, if you have some siblings you can check in with about that, I think that that, you know, that would be really helpful. That could maybe help fill in some of these blank spots or memory gaps that you have. Um but yeah, it, those signs that you have, the signs that you have around your dad, just like with the first one where it's like that discomfort could come, you know, like in the first case, it could come with the age difference now that we're an adult, but it also could be a sign of abuse. And it is okay to consider that and to think about it. I know the one thing that I hate about stuff like this is that even just thinking about it and trying to talk about it in therapy to find out if something happened, it can kind of shift our relationship with that loved one. And that may be something that we can't go back from. But if you're having confusing nightmares, I'd be very curious about what those are and how those look and what's happening in them. And I'd also be interested in your your father's uh, reaction to you dating and getting married. And if you had any reactions to, you know, sexual experiences as, you know, in, in your love life, in your other relationships, I'd be curious about that stuff too, because those are all kind of indicators of things like that. And so anyway, I'd have a bunch of questions, but I, I, I'm glad that you have a therapist that you're talking this through who seems to be very good at their job and aware, you know, noticing the signs and the symptoms and, and having you dig in. Because again, it could have been due to the nanny situation, or it could be due to that and your father. And, you know, we're just now recalling it. Again, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but keep being curious, keep digging in so that we can find out what happened so that then we can, you know, work to heal and so that we don't hopefully either don't have these signs and symptoms anymore um, or we're able to make sense of them and act accordingly, right? Now, the final question on this question, like a comment under, asks, what difference does it make if I'm just scared for whatever reason, movies or made up scenarios, or if I was actually harassed by my father? What difference does it make in therapy treatment if the nightmares stem from my fantasy or actual experiences? I wanted to add that I can't imagine my father doing any harm to anyone, but he has an alcohol problem and is a different person when drunk. 
I hope this gets answered and thank you for everything you do. Yes, of course. So, and I think this was the person who asked the initial question, but I might be wrong. Um, but the interesting thing about being scared for whatever reason, movies made up scenarios. Um, I, I think only you were going to know that you'd have to, again, be curious and not judgmental about your process and where you think this is coming from. And the nightmares, nightmares are interesting. Nightmares that are actual flashbacks feel like them and they seem like them and they fit in, in a way where we're like, I think that really happened, right? We feel that way. Like it's happening to us again. Nightmares are like nonsensical chaos where we can feel like, for instance, I have this recurring nightmare where um, this man with brown curly hair tries to break into my home that I grew up in, which I haven't lived in forever. Um, and I run from the back porch to lock in that door, trying to lock all the doors because all the doors are open for some reason. And I can never get to the front door in time before he gets there. And then I wake up, right? Um, it's just this recurring dream. Now, did that ever happen to me? No. Is it super terrifying? Yes. Does it even make sense? No. Because if then if you ask me details, like, um, who is this person? Have you seen them before? I'd be like, I don't even know who they are. Um, has anything ever happened? Anybody break into your house when you're a kid? No, never had anything happen. Do you watch a lot of crime mystery things where people break into houses? guilty as charged. Um, and so if you feel, but I don't wake up thinking that that happened to me, that that actually was a real thing, but I know, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I know from my viewers and patients alike that those flashback type nightmares are based on some kind of fact, like a memory of a, even if it's just a chunk of a memory that we have, like, um, you know, even Shane has talked about this being abused as a kid and how he has these like, these like essentially believes he, like has panic attacks all through his sleep. And there are these flashbacks. It's, it's like based on bits of memory that he does have. And so using that as kind of like a reference point, do we have some things that we remember bits, but we're not really sure. And maybe it doesn't make sense or it feels like, yes, that happened to us. And it's very, very familiar, right? Like I was wearing, I remember this outfit and I actually wore that outfit. I'm in my bed in the bed that I grew up in. And, you know, consider that because I do not believe that it is normal nightmare behavior to have any kind of sexual interaction with a parent. I do not believe that that is anything that our brains would ever create from what I understand about dreams and things like that, that would never be a thing that would occur. So if we're having dreams like that, it's something or nightmares rather, it is something that we should talk about in therapy. We should try to figure out where it's coming from, what happened, make sense of it so that we can heal from it because something most likely happened. And when someone's drunk, they, if, if they're a different person, maybe that person hurt you, right? If they aren't themselves and have no control, that doesn't, that doesn't make it, that doesn't make them less guilty, but that just means that the person that you know, who's sober is, doesn't have to be the same person, you know, is drunk and they can do and say different things and act in different ways that could put you in danger. I hope that that helps you guys. I know that's very complicated. And if you want follow-ups or if I, if I said something that was upsetting, please let me know. Or if you feel like you need more insight or something I said didn't make sense, you know, again, please let me know. It, it's very nuanced. It's very difficult from the outside reading one comment or one question to try to make sense of it. That's why I always encourage all of you to get into therapy, to talk about this with someone, to try to make sense of it for you so that you don't have these horrible nightmares or flashbacks or upsets or discomfort. We have to figure out what's going on and, and do our best to try and make sense of it so that we can feel better, you know, overcome the, the upset and heal if we're needed, because, you know, we all have some healing to do, even if it's just the 
the changes of life and being a different age and not being able to play with our dad the way that we used to, you know, that sometimes there's some grief there. So anyways, I hope that that was helpful. Thank you all for sending in your questions. I get asked all the time, where do I send in my questions? I ask for them on Sunday mornings on the podcast YouTube channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter in that community tab. And you can put them there. And I've heard from everybody that getting your question in early, like right away. So I at 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Sunday mornings, I have it scheduled to post. And if you get your question in, I pick the ones, the top eight of them have the most thumbs up. And then I randomly pick two others um, so that hopefully everybody gets a chance to get their question answered. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I hope these answers were helpful. Such great questions as always, you know, all across the board of different topics. You all are wonderful. Please uh, share this podcast if you find it helpful. Leave reviews. Um, That's always helpful for me as well. I hope that you at least got one nugget of information that can help you feel better today and tomorrow and for, you know, the rest of this week, because I will see you at the same place next Thursday. Have a wonderful week. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Kate.